Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, dramatic footage of police clashing with protesters has been emerging in recent weeks from one of Russia's longest-running protests. Demonstrators in the country's smallest republic have been up in arms over a land swap that is carving up even more of their territory. The Kremlin uh, doesn't like to talk about the uh, Ingushetia, Chechnya, or Dagestan, or the North Caucasus at all, because you you have to be very careful when you uh, speak on these matters, because people there are very sensitive. We'll speak with Lisa Focht, a journalist working for the BBC's Russian service who's been covering the fallout from Moscow and Ingushetia. And later, what happens when an alleged Russian assassin arrested in Ukraine after barely trying to conceal a murder starts talking? But on uh, a fateful day in September uh, 2016, he received a text message, which in his recollection said, the rose has to be picked today. Uh, Tomorrow will no longer be relevant. Uh, And uh, rose referred to the victim, Ivan Mamchur. We'll speak with Michael Schwartz of The New York Times, whose story about Alex Smorodinov offers a closer look at how Russia's foes abroad end up dead. First up, protests first erupted in Magas, the capital of Russia's smallest republic, Ingushetia, back in October, over a deal to give up land to neighboring Chechnya, which is run by strongman Ramzan Kadyrov. Since the protests kicked off, we've seen an Amnesty International researcher subjected to a mock execution, police firing into the air to disperse protesters, and a local head of the Interior Ministry resign. But at what stage is the Kremlin going to intervene? Joining us in the studio is Lisa Focht, a journalist for the BBC's Russian service, who was on the ground when the protests broke out late last year. Um, Lisa, thanks very much for taking the time to be in the studio with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, tell us first of all, what's the backstory here? What are these protests about? How, how and why did they break out in October? Uh, the p- protests in Ingushetia are mostly still about the borderline with uh, Chechnya. Uh, probably, as uh, you remember, last fall, Yunus Bekyevkurov and uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the leaders of uh, Ingushetia and Chechnya, uh, set up sort of a swap of territories between Chechnya and Ingushetia. Uh, but people of Ingushetia, they believe that the territories if could have decided to transfer to Chechnya could, could, couldn't be transferred to anyone at all. And uh, we, we all have to understand that these people minds, the Protestant minds, are completely different from our own and where we just see a map, mountains, fields and stones, they see their legacy. They feel like they're responsible for these lands uh, in, I don't know, before the God's uh, eyes, before the eyes of their parents and grandparents and their parents and grandparents. So they, they their ties to these territories uh, have like historical and biological roots so they can't just say okay uh, okay take them no it's impossible then and uh, Yevkurov in their eyes look like a traitor Uh, he he, he should be responsible he should defend the searches and he just gives them away they 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 don't understand it and uh, another reason is the Ingushetia has already lost lots of its territories in the Soviet period so mm, the matter is really painful for these people so 
like you said, we've seen these pr- protests flare up again in, in, in recent weeks. Can you tell us about some of the developments on the ground? What, what are we seeing happen there in in, in, in Yeah, Asia As far as I understand, the situation is stable and calm now, but they're going to set uh, another rally by the end of the week. And local authorities said they're not going to deliver any permission for this rally. So it probably will be an after-race, which is, which is quite dangerous. Uh, uh, I mean, the most important thing I think that is happening now is that the Russian investigative committee has started a criminal case on mass riots. So we're probably going to see uh, mass arrests, the thing we we haven't seen after the first outbreak of uh, protests. The other important thing is that uh, the head of Ingushetia police, the minister of internal affairs, he lost his job as well as a bunch of riot police members because local authorities believe they couldn't prevent the new outbreak of protests. And I think um, the most bothering thing for them is that protesters blocked the federal road, the Kafkas road. And this road connects Vladikavkaz, uh, Magas, the capital of Ingushetia, and Grozny. So this is a really big deal for local authorities. They, they, I, I, I mean, they think they uh, can't let this happen again. So the, the answer is pretty clear here. When these protests kicked off back in October... Well, you you took pretty dramatic footage of yeah. police firing into the air to to disperse the protesters. In general, what has been the response of the local authorities to this de- to to these demonstrations? I think then this moment when they started to uh, shoot in the air was the scariest moment, was the biggest moment of escalation uh, on the ground. Because after that, it it, it was pretty calm, uh, I would say. But this moment was really scary for me and for people on the ground because they didn't know that uh, there are no bullets and guns, that they just want to scare people and uh, to defend Yunus Bekyevkurov, who who, who came to talk to protesters. And um, I think that the most important things is the decision to shut down the internet every time uh, the protests uh, take uh, place. And according to media reports as well as the BBC Russian uh, reports uh, which I uh, worked on. This decision has been made by um, sort of security service, uh, the Shilovikis, and basically every time a rally takes place, they order mill companies to shut down the line, completely shut down the line, and it, it just doesn't work. And I remember when I was there this fall, we barely could work, because when you wanted to upload something uh, on Twitter or just to deliver some information to your editor desk, uh, you just had to run in your hotel, because there was the Wi-Fi in it, and and upload it. And I mean, they're trying to make it difficult for protesters to talk to each other, to plan some new rallies. That's uh, why they're turning it off. Uh, but I think the saddest things about it for me is that mobile companies, including MTS, Megaphone and Beeline, so basically the largest company in, in Russia, they don't want to tell their clients what is it about. Because if you just call them and ask what's happening, they say, okay, thanks for calling we, right. we, we we don't have any problems we'll check but it's okay and I saw uh, internal letters of megaphone employees where they bosses tell them we don't want to confirm the problems you just tell uh, all the people who who call us it's okay it, it, it's working when it's not so far these the political fallout seems to be mostly contained to the North Caucasus region and it seems to so far be mostly a local issue has the Kremlin said anything yet? 
And if not, why not? Peskov said, uh, the press secretary of President Putin said last week that uh, this situation requires our attention. <laughs> and I remember how Yunus Bekyevkurov told uh, um, the Echo of Moscow radio station last fall that Putin had, had called him after the first outbreak of the protests and said, okay, Yunus Bek, uh, you should uh, listen to your people. You should speak to them on the language of democracy. The Kremlin uh, doesn't like to talk about the Ingushetia, uh, Chechnya or Dagestan or the North Caucasus at all because you you have to be very careful when you uh, speak on these matters because people there are very sensitive and they are the kind of people that is ready to defend their land, defend their territories. Lots of them, I believe, I don't know, they, they can find guns easily if that's what they want. So you have to be very, very, very careful when you speak on the matter. And, and, I, and I don't think that Putin... Uh, has ever said something publicly on Ingushetia, but I'm sure. Uh, but I'm sure they look uh, into this very carefully and very attentive. How do you see this playing out? What are the p- possible scenarios here for a resolution to this to I these mean, series of protests? I mean, it's always difficult to predict that kind of things because I remember exactly a year ago uh, I was in camera when I was covering the this uh, fire in uh, in the shopping center mall right. or Winter Cherry. Yeah, around and 61 I, people died. Yeah, when, when, yeah, exactly. And, and and I remember that I was on the main square of the city and people gathered there and they were so mad that you like felt that life can never be the same again. Like uh, like they, they were so angry, so confident. They demanded changes. They demanded resignations. And in the end, uh, by the end of the day, the square was empty. Yeah, so it's really difficult to predict any scenarios. But what I can say, can can remember like a slogan from uh, the Game of Thrones, the North remembers. These people remember too. They 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 never forget anything, and their memory is really better than the, the, than our memory. So um, I think what is happening there can be really important for some further events, for some historical events where going to witness maybe not now maybe in some years maybe in dozens of years but uh, as I said they never forget this kind of thing because it has ties to their past which is sometimes more important for them than their present and their future but I think that in recent weeks we're definitely going to see more more morales and maybe more arrests because uh, b- 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 because as I said the investigative committee started a criminal case and in Russia that means we're going to see arrests we'll have to watch this space Lisa thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today thank you when Ivan Mamchur, a Ukrainian prison guard and military veteran, was murdered in Rivna in western Ukraine, it didn't take long for the authorities to identify the culprit. Alex Smorodinov had done little to cover his tracks. Ukrainian authorities say the killing was a routine affair, a Russian assassin ordered to carry out a hit for the Russian intelligence services. What no one expected was that the assassin would spill the story of his recruitment to the press. Joining us on the line is New York Times journalist Michael Schwartz, who met with Smorodinov last October. Michael, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, anytime. I love the Moscow time. So first of all, tell us, how did you learn that Alex Morodinov had been detained? I had been doing reporting on the, the poisoning in the UK of Sergei Skripal and his daughter um, and wanted to do more reporting on uh, potential Russian assassinations. I knew 
from, you know, reporting that others had done, that there had been a rash of assassinations. Ukraine, I went there kind of looking to see if I could find a case that would be worth digging into that was similar to the Skripal case, but perhaps more accessible. I hadn't been having much luck getting all that many details about the Skripal case. And uh, I had already I'd done a lot of reporting in Ukraine in the past and had a number of sources. And one source I was speaking to mentioned this case among several others that appeared to have involved uh, the Russian intelligence services in some way. And there wasn't a lot of details about it, but the case seemed compelling enough. It was weird enough to me that it, it seemed like it might be interesting to dig into. A lot of the other cases in Ukraine had been more resonant. They had involved journalists or high-level politicians or well-known politicians, military figures, people who you might assume would be targets uh, of assassination, given sort of interest in, in sort of destabilizing and, and gaining an edge in the in the war. And so um, those were less interesting to me than this case out of Rivna, which seemed to sort of come out of left field. There was no simple reason for why anyone, uh, particularly in Russia, particularly in the Russian government, would want to kill this individual, Ivan Mamchur, who at the time of his death was working as an electrician in a local jail. And so it was interesting enough, and, and I had heard that the individual charged uh, in his murder was on trial, uh, and trials are always a great way to sort of get access to information. And so I, I rented a car and drove out there, not with uh, all that much hope of getting anything, but sort of I figured I'd give it a try. And what did you expect to, to learn from meeting him? Well, initially, I just hoped that he would talk to me for a few minutes. I didn't expect, uh, uh, you know, normally when you sort of pop up out of the blue and confront somebody in a cage uh, at their trial, uh, you know, in my in my experience, it's generally it's kind of surprising people and, and saying that I'm a journalist. Very few people are keen to talk. Um, and so I didn't I didn't have very high hopes of learning all that much at all. Uh, initially, I thought this might be one case in a number of cases I looked into and I was going to be happy to sort of leave this there with a brief interview and maybe a few sound bites from uh, from this individual Oleg. But in fact, kind of almost as soon as I approached him, he was he was very very eager to talk and and you know almost kind of unstoppable. Uh, the only you know when the judge came in was when he stopped initially and uh, uh, and we continued our conversation over. So let's have some background here. What exactly are the Ukrainian authorities accusing Smorodinov of, of having done? I think the summer of 2016, and this is by Smorodinov's own account count as well as some confirmation about various details of it from from friends and relatives and documents and such. Smorodinov was sent to Rivna, which is a town in western Ukraine, about an hour drive from Lviv, and told by his handlers in Moscow that he was to surveil this individual, Ivan Mamchur. He claims that he was not aware that he would be eventually uh, killing this individual. But he did say that, you know, these handlers in Moscow, who he believed were members of the Russian intelligence services, though he didn't know that, um, he didn't know that 100%. He believed that he was to surveil this individual and another team was supposed to come and kill him. But on uh, a fateful day in September, uh, 2016, he received a text message, which in his recollection said, the rose has to be picked today. Uh, tomorrow will no longer be relevant. 
uh, and uh, Rose referred to the victim, Ivan Mamchur. Uh, uh, it was the code name that they used to describe him. So uh, Oleg uh, uh, took a gun that he had been supplied with uh, and waited for Ivan to, to come home to his apartment. It's a six-floor apartment in one of these Soviet-style buildings uh, and killed him uh, and, you know, very shortly after fled the country. Uh, but a few months later, you know, he was told by his handlers that nobody was looking for him, that it was safe for him to go back in Ukraine. He had a plan to sort of continue his work with them. But uh, before he did that, he wanted to visit his girlfriend, uh, uh, his ex-girlfriend for her birthday. And it was when he was crossing the border that he got arrested and sent to jail, which is where I eventually found him. Now, according to Ukrainian authorities, this is not an isolated incident or an isolated case. On what scale do they say Russia is carrying out targeted killings on their territory? Right. The Ukrainian authorities say that, that there are Russian assassins sort of running all over the place uh, in Ukraine. And uh, it, it, it is it is certainly true that there have been a number of assassinations in Ukraine, uh, particularly since the war began uh, between sort of the Ukrainian authorities and, and, and Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine in 2014. A number of high-ranking military and intelligence officials have been killed. Journalists, political figures have all been killed. And every single time this happens, uh, you know, Russia is is quickly blamed uh, by the Ukrainian authorities. Now, there's some debate in some of these cases about whether Russia indeed had a hand in them. But uh, Ukrainian authorities do say that, that, you know, Russian intelligence has sort of been involved in a consistent and concerted campaign uh, of terror, they would call it, to sort of an, it, both to eliminate uh, uh, potential enemies, but just generally to kind of sow an atmosphere of fear in, in Ukraine and sort of keep, keep Ukraine off its footing. You mentioned in your piece that in 2006, Vladimir Putin signed a law legalizing targeted killings abroad. Is, is Russia denying playing a role in assassinations it's, it's accused of carrying out in Ukraine? Right. I mean, uh, you know, just in the, in the biggest case in recent in recent years, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, you know, Russia vehemently denies uh, what are the British uh, government's accusation that two members of the Russian uh, military intelligence uh, service um, applied this highly volatile nerve agent to a doorknob in an attempt to kill this former spy. Russia denies, you know, denies, denies everything strongly. And when I, I had a text exchange with um, Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, ahead of this story, and sort of, you know, they denied, uh, he denied any knowledge of either of these people, uh, Oleg and, uh, and Ivan. Um, and so they, they certainly are not going around bragging about this sort of thing. And if you just, you know, if you, if you talk about, you know, efforts at covering it up, analysts of the intelligence service will say using a figure like Oleg Smorodinov, who is not, as far as we know, a member of the Russian intelligence services, but rather, you know, a resident of eastern Ukraine who had taken part in the in the separatists fighting there on, on the side of the rebels and uh, was picked up by the Russian intelligence services. So he claims that puts them at a remove so that they can sort of deny responsibility for, for these types of things. And do we know who is ultimately responsible for these killings or who is authorizing the assassinations? If, if there is a way of knowing, I, I haven't found I haven't found out that information. You know, this is a sort of educated guess on my part. It's hard for me to believe that Vladimir Putin himself gave the green light uh, to kill somebody like Ivan Mamchur. However, on the, you know, uh, when we talk about the Skripal case, 
you know, I think it, it, it pretty likely that there was some high level buy in if you if you believe the, the British version of events. It seems hard to believe that this could have happened without some sort of high level Kremlin level buy in. Now, each of the six targets that Smorodinov says he was given by his handlers in Moscow were linked by one shared experience. Can you tell us what that was? Right. So uh, Smorodinov had a list of six men he was meant to surveil. And, and Ivan Mamchur, the victim in this case, was the, the first one he was sent to uh, to watch over. And, and I was able to get a hold of this list. Uh, it was on his computer in Moscow. And, uh, and, and as I dug into it, you know, one thing sort of stood out, as you mentioned, that, that all these men uh, appeared to have had some connection to the war in Georgia, um, in the Republic of Georgia in 2008. Uh, the war that Georgia fought against Russia over a separatist enclave. It was very, very difficult for me to determine exactly how they were involved. All the men appear to have been in Georgia at that time. Russia claims that there was serious uh, and significant Ukrainian support for Georgia during the war. I was not able to establish whether any one of these figures was ever involved in the fighting. The Ukrainian government strongly denies that there were any Ukrainian uh, military figures in uh, involved in any kind of any kind of fighting but the fact of the matter is that all six of these people were there during the war and the Russian claim is that they helped to train Georgian military to operate anti-aircraft systems. Is that right? Correct. That's what the Russians claim. So what is established is that a few years before the war, Ukraine sold Georgia these highly advanced anti-aircraft systems. And what Russians believe is that the Georgians were incapable, had, didn't have the training or the skills to operate these, these systems. And that Ukrainian advisors, helpers were the ones that were, in fact, operating them and shooting down planes. So when you compare this story to the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, the common thread here seems to be that these could be interpreted as revenge killings. Or what's your takeaway from this story? What do we learn about Russia from this? I think you're right. I think, you know, revenge plays a big part of it. And 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 that, that in fact, does go right to the top. Putin has described treachery as the one sin he can't forgive. He said that in the context of spy swap uh, in 2010, which in fact led to uh, Sergei Skripal's release from a Russian uh, prison. Uh, transfer to to Britain. You know, in the case of the uh, Ukrainians, what what Russians say of Ukraine's assistance to Georgia during the war, he made similar comments. We would find the people who helped out, and we would take care of it. And so, you know, uh, you know that is a common thread. You know, if you cross us, we are going to we're going to do something about it. And it doesn't seem that there's any time that can elapse that would that would sort of uh, soften the threat. Uh, you know, with Skripal, we don't exactly know what Skripal was up to. Uh, in the years before his the poisoning, um, he had been living in uh, Britain for about eight years uh, before he was poisoned. This is the same thing with uh, with Ivan Mamchur. It's been eight years since the war. And even if he participated in it, you know, by all accounts, he was, you know, a simple family man at the time that he was killed, suggesting that, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this, you know, effort to avenge what are considered wrongs against Russian state, you know, that there's a long arm there uh, that will reach far into the future. And, uh, you know, uh, any any amount of time elapsing is not going to make you safe. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Michael. Take care. Bye. And to finish off, we're all prone to fits of mild road rage every once in a while, but probably not that many of us have gone this far. Oh, 
What we're hearing is a man in Yamal Nenets in northern Siberia who was filmed smashing up a car that was blocking his from exiting a parking lot. First, he puts the headlights out with a sledgehammer before jumping onto the bonnet or hood of the car and hammering through the windshield. It turned out that the whole scene had been staged as part of an elaborate social media prank, but the authorities didn't care about that. The man in the video now faces up to five years in prison for hooliganism using dangerous weapons. He's pleaded guilty. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website to read more about Ingushetia, Ukraine, and other oddities from Russia. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 